This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global change makers dedicated to creating a healthier planet. One where our unique gifts are lived, expressed, and celebrated. I'm your host, Julian Guderlein. And today I'm here with Nisha Mary Paulus, who is an architect, a regional planner, and has a passion for social ecological impact and regenerative systems. I'm super stoked to have this conversation with you, Nisha. Welcome. Thank you, Julian. I'm super excited to be here and have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you are in Bangalore, India today. Um, I'm in the Pacific Northwest in Canada. Um, but the common threat is regeneration and how to you know, let that inform how we work, operate, and change systems in the world. So maybe just to start and, and get people uh, accustomed with it, with your journey a little bit, where, where, when, and how did regeneration like take over your professional life? Um, so as I think as far back as I can remember, I was in love with nature. So for me, it was a very natural choice as I grew up and I finished my uh, master's, uh, sorry, my, my architecture at that point, And I started working. It was just seeking, um, at that time I didn't have the vocabulary for it, but I was seeking for this, this way of balanced living with uh, the, the planet, with ecology, where, you know, as, as a being, when you're living, how do you contribute to it? And that was this inquiry that I had right from the time, I think, uh, as far as I can remember. And so when I started working, I was pursuing, pursuing these kind of jobs. And slowly I started moving from architecture into environmental planning. And then I did my master's and I came into regional planning. And even after that, I was still thinking, okay, this is human habitat is such a big part of our lives. And it is the way we design habitat, the way we inhabit our spaces is causing a lot of problems and a lot of imbalances, which you're seeing everything from like trees being cut down to biodiversity disappearing from like our homes and um, it's very evident and so it was uh, at that point that I started realizing okay maybe we need to have more systemic approaches um, mm -hmm. and more integrated approaches and that's how I got into regeneration and I started reading and started understanding what the term means and what uh, that the power that the vocabulary itself gives um, to all that I kind of want to do as, as a part of this planet as a one of the inhabitants of the millions billions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how you started with your love for nature, because that's, you know, a common thread among so many guests on this podcast. And I know so many people that tune in as well is we inherently are nature, and therefore we love nature. And when we realize where um, the systems and the, the, the socioeconomical world around us kind of fails nature, then, you know, we, we reconcile that in, in our own ways, usually. And at this point, we can call it regeneration. I think 10, 15, 20 years ago, few people used those words. Um, yeah, and you know, in, in your work as an architect, it's very exciting because you get to shape spaces and the way people experience spaces. So maybe walk us through one of your recent projects where you felt like these um, you know, principles and values were, were honored and, and you just had a lot of fun applying them into, yeah, the, the very pragmatic grounded world around us. Sure, I'd love to. Um, actually, I can share about a project that I'm currently doing. So I'm just literally in the thick of it. 
So um, I'm designing a house um, on the banks of a river in uh, Kerala. It's on the southwest coast of India. And it's this incredibly beautiful site. Um, like the last time I went there, I saw everything from crabs to all sorts of birds, huge spiders. Um, and without doing anything, the abundance of the site from the number of flowers that are coming up or um, fruits that are falling and nuts that are falling, it's just incredible the abundance of that site, basically because no one has interfered much with it in the last, uh, uh, let's say, few uh, decades. So designing on this land was um, actually was quite an emotional struggle for me so far because the clients want um, quite a big house. That's 4,000 square feet of a house and that's their requirement. And my sort of gut response is like, no, no, let's not build, let's not cut any trees. Let's just leave it. And like, let's see if we can build small. But there was this, uh, this sort of a dissonance there and at some point, I have to like reconcile with it and um, be like, you know, if I don't design this, if I don't design this in a way that the client feels happy, they're going to go to somebody else who's just going to be willing to cut all the trees. So right. That's when I was like, I have to do this, however difficult it may seem and however many times I have to like attempt to work around all of it. So to give you a little context, it's very flood prone basically it's on the banks of the river and um, it's naturally flood prone and the way it's been for centuries is that when the uh, when the monsoons uh, are it at in and the river is in spate the water comes into the side you know and that's kind of part of it and with climate change it's become even more um, intense and more difficult so it's a very so what i've been doing for them is how do we design without cutting a single tree, but I also like trying to see, you know, I don't even want to disturb the roots. And so that involves a lot of communication with the client where we're every step of the way, there's a lot I'm trying to imbibe uh, from them and also impart to them in, in why we're doing this and how these trees will actually protect you the next time there's a flood. And it's not in your benefit to cut any of it down. So anyway, so that was the process. It's actually a residence and uh, now we're we're in this stage of like finalizing the design and we're using very uh, ecologically uh, pro, uh, friendly materials like um, we're working with some kind of bricks that are made out of agricultural waste instead of using concrete. Cool. Um, we are moving things around so that um, the soil is not disturbed and using even if we have to move, move some of the some parts of the soil and things I want to leave it on on the site itself so that it's um it becomes part of that that microecology mm. um so yeah so it, it involves so much conversation and i think that is that that was my learning from this as well because however it gets frustrating because it's not what mainstream um society really wants you know like this is my site i can do whatever i want with it but to when we start having this dialogue um, everybody, like you said, everyone is innately a natural being. Mm. And uh, you see that that integration with this idea and the love coming through. And that's always this inspiring turning point of any project that we do. Yeah, this is really exciting. Great example also, you know, that when someone has the liberty to build what they want, these dialogues show up even um, maybe even with more ease or with more, you know, Clarity, because when we talk about regional planning or urban planning or, you know, et cetera, it, you know, it, so far, 
in, in the world, it, it comes back to what you just called mainstream, right? Like, so what are the ways of industries? What are the standards we usually use? Um, how, how does, you know, how does, uh, what's the budget? How does the supply chain provide for that? And so sometimes the possibilities aren't actually as, um, maybe as ample as they would be in a private project with someone who is just wants to build their dream home. But what we're talking about is the integration into the natural world around us, right? As we are part of that. So um, with your, you know, Bangalore-based initiative for climate justice and climate action uh, for regional planning, how, how could you see parallels of what you just shared? I'm, I'm super curious to hear how in a, you know, in a city, I've, I've been to Bangalore, what a crazy city, you know, <laughs> um, how that, also what a great city actually, um, but how, how that plays a role in regional planning, because at some point, you know, I'm like, fingers crossed, this is going to take over the way we as humans plan for our bioregions and we plan for each other again, right? I, I think it used to, and we've gone through this like massive leap of industrial revolution to the point that we realized like we don't need to industrialize everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank, uh, that, that's that's a great question. So, like in a city like Bangalore, there's so many um, so many things at play, and so much of uh, so many layers of complexity. And uh, the way we approach it is to just embrace that complexity. Like, let's mm. not try to simplify it. This is what it is. These are the problems that people are facing. This is the problem ecology is facing. This is the context of the governance. This is the context of uh, the, the socioeconomic um, status of people. So how do we mm -hmm. how do we weave it all into our um, sort of advantage in terms of a holistic uh, way of uh, evolution? So the way the same, you know, how 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 I would draw parallels is using the same kind of multi-pronged approach, one of which is actually awareness and um, sort of reconnecting and understanding that people actually care more. It's more good people than bad people in this world and people actually do care. It's just that they've been, over the years, they've lost that connect. Um, so how do we reinitiate that connect? And it's it could be very through very simple ways, you know, like it could be a workshop on the banks of a lake and you see those instances uh, uh, of the previous connects kind of coming up. So the way we do it is we, first of all, we collaborate with as many people, as many local organizations, large and small as possible, so that it can be a very integrated process. And so when we're say collaborating with a particular NGO that has worked in a particular community, what that also brings is access to, um, working with that community um, in an environment of trust. Um, so by default, we always remind that, I always remind myself that um, I don't necessarily know the best, what is best for anything, but what I'm good at is listening um, and imbibing and converting that into sort of practical solutions. So in the, so, one, so one big component is engaging through other organizations to see how can we increase awareness and education and also increase empathy. The other is also uh, engaging to very innovative solutions, right? So we look everywhere. We look at what is the vernacular solution, what is the old solution that used to work here. But when you also explore like best case scenarios across the world and, and we have a very participatory approach so a lot of stakeholders come together and 
all of this information that which is my homework which is what i collect is, is shared and together we, we as much as possible try to co-create the solution so when a solution is co-created there's ownership and what woven um that's my organization um, here in India, uh, what we actually bring to the table is actively elevating the voice of nature. Um, so mm. we sort of, a lot of times- Maybe, de maybe demystify that. that. Like I would love to hear how, like that process of actively uh, bringing the voice of nature in, into, the, into the context, because you know that's literally what we've been talking about on this podcast so much is nature doesn't be, it's not accounted for in spreadsheets of the human mind's creation. And that is one of the first things that needs to change, right? We need to include the natural world into our legal systems, into our planning, et cetera, et cetera, for it to have a representation um, in, in all of the systems, which there might be other ways around it, but this is pretty much the most pragmatic part where, you know, the kind of like uh, quotation marks here from, from Forrest Gump, like the cookie crumbles, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I, my connection with with the natural, it, it's strange that we're talking about humans and nature, right? But we end up talking mm -hmm. about that. But it is true. We, there is that very strong disconnect. Um, and my connection with nature is actually something from my childhood. I really spent a lot of time climbing trees and like literally living, um, spending my daytimes on top of trees, right? So, and those nature all around. And I have, I feel that I have this very deep connect. So, Every time I have to look at a design project, there's always a natural context, if, even if there's no single tree or there isn't a single blade of grass or an insect or anything on site, if it's that barren, even then there's still the soil and the air, right? So at that point, um, I really sort of delve into myself. It's a little, it's a lot of work in kind of an emotional state as well, where I go back to those three, those connects that I had built as a child. And I literally start feeling if I am a tree on the site or if I, what would my rights be, right? So it, I kind of mm. position myself like that to see, okay, I have to represent the best interest of, uh, of all natural elements that don't necessarily have a voice that we can hear. So that's, that really helps because it really enables me to look at it like how do we build around it because the other thing is a lot of times uh when planning or design or any kind of infrastructure construction most of the time the project is going to happen no matter what yeah so what i and my company we desperately do is like okay let's find a way around it so we can conserve as much as possible we can regenerate as much as possible and even if we have to d destroy something how do we best make up for it within the same site or find alternate connects within the uh, ecology of that uh, area that region mm. so yeah so that's kind of well the voice of nature is in my head and then uh and that's beautiful and the flip side of it yeah the flip side of it is also that it really affects me so i have to do a lot of work um within myself so that it doesn't debilitate me um, and uh, helps me sort of like balance myself as well mm. to uh, um, move forward. Mm. Let me pick up on two, uh, you know, strains of thought here. One is, you know, the accounting for the voice of nature. And, and there's, as you said, that for many of us, that internal representation of it, where we realize like that voice, if we tune into it, we make space for it, we can listen to. I'm reading a book right now. Um, it's like the, the second book from Peter Wohlleben. I actually have the hard copy here. So 
put it in the screen. Um, the first one was called The Hidden Life of Trees. This one's called The Secret Wisdom of Nature. And in this book, it's it's stories from science and observation from an, you know, a forest engineer. And so it's very interesting because when we look um, at you know, some of the data and then also some of these observations that the people that spend their life in the natural systems and, and have you know, tons of experience, a lot of these voices of nature become very, very visible. The interconnections are they're still kind of like beyond the human um, mind of uh, rationalization because nature is very complex in its simple beauty. But that's one element is right to observe that more to 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 have a scientific um, observation that isn't biased by companies that just want to destroy in that sense. And then the other part, and, and that's where I want to, you know, I'd love to dive a, a little bit deeper is, is what you said about creating that balance in ourselves so that we we can be those agents of change in a world that actually is demanding a lot from us. Um, so the way I see this in, in my world and in my inner world is that there is regenerating earth and then there's regenerating self, right? Because the self, like we, most of us have grown up in, you know, industrial schooling systems have grown up in, you know, in a world that, you know, in a, in a patriarchal world where like just the harder you push, the more effort you put in, the, the better you'll be. And so I think it's, it's a very important part not to fight that, but to just reconcile it within oneself and make space for silence, stillness, walks in nature, forest bathing, so that we actually have this kind of overflowing natural energy, that abundant energy that is natural to us. Um, what are some of your practices? And, you know, specifically you um, being from India and India right now, I, I imagine that, that there might be, um, you know, possibly like, beautifully ancient practices that, 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 you know, you, you can share from, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, The Hidden Life of Trees is one of my favorite books too. Nice. Uh, <laughs> it's so beautiful to read it. It's so much fun as well. Um, so, um, I am, uh, you know, again, uh, when I say it itself, it's a bit of this current patriarchal setup where you're not supposed to have a routine and you're supposed to do certain things. And by nature, I'm not somebody who is very kind of, um, who has a daily routine. And for the longest time, I fought it and I was like, I have to get up, I have to meditate, I have to do this, I have to do that. But over the last three, four years, I've let go of that and I just do what I feel like doing. If I feel like I need to take some time, I take some time. But that being said, um, the practices, one thing that I've been doing lately that's really working is engaging with different practices. Um, so sometimes it could be like a Buddhist meditation. Um, sometimes it's just like hugging a tree. Um, sometimes it's just sitting and um, sitting outside and watching the rain. So I do a range of practices um, in, from more formal um, meditation sessions. And, and you're right, like in India, there's so many different types of meditations that you have access to and you can learn and do it in the, in the full uh, scale of which it was meant to be practiced. Mm. Um, but I do it once in a while. But what really rejuvenates me is actually listening to stories. Mm. Um, and I love folklore. Uh, so 
a lot of times, you know, especially like there's indigenous folklore or like ancient some stories which come together. So I use every opportunity to find that. Like um, I ask people, what is, you know, like whoever it is that, oh, what, you know, what are the, some of the stories that your grandmothers told you? And somehow it's very therapeutic. Also because I feel like there's so much content in these stories, you know, um, at the top, it seems like a lot of superstition and a lot of like magic and, but the meaning which I it's kind of part of what I do and later I sit and analyze how oh, that's so interesting why they were talking about some creature in the sky who decided to lose its wings and just start walking the earth right um so I interpret it and somehow it's extreme and I do it in like I take some silent time and do it and it's really kind of uh it it inspires me it rejuvenates me it also kind of serves to connect me as a part of the human race to the planet because folklore from across the world is really just based on that. Um, so that's something I really do and I enjoy doing and I, I, um, it sort of came naturally to me as a process of uh, revitalizing myself. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing a little bit about that. I'm, I'm curious, I have a follow-up question that I often ask, which is, uh, you know, given what you just shared and also the the, the need for just diversity and flexibility in one's own day because they totally resonate what would you do nisha if you were to change the education systems on this planet like you know you're given full creative freedom all the budget you could imagine you can hire all the experts you want how would you change the education systems and and the way we uh, both teach children and young adults but also the way we we, we learn as as adults even so that is such a potent and beautiful question and definitely kind of the need of the hour because certainly you see the uh, the effect of the education system on the adults of today. Hmm. What Big would time, I do? Right? I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would certainly bring a lot of nature time into um, the education system on a daily basis. Um, nature time from both sort of organic casual ways um, like the way you walk to your classroom you know the route from say the gate of the school to the classroom or from one classroom to another um, to the experiences of um, actually spending deliberate time in nature and working with your hands so I feel like those are things that really help and especially as children because this is something in my own life, which I experienced as a young child, when you're, it's a natural instinct to like play with mud. And then it's something your most children are prevented from doing because there's right. all sorts of things that happen. You get worms, you get dirty, you dirty your clothes. But these kind of things are very important. And I would want to really integrate that into the education system as such, um, how to formally and in, informally bring about intuitive connections to nature. And also the other thing is um, to also have conversations, which honest conversations in safe environments, whether you're discussing like, um, I don't know whether you had it, but we used to have a subject called current events, which is basically discussing the news. And now when I think back, I actually could have been, it's actually to create a safe space to discuss what's happening in the world as children. And then to really express what you're feeling and receive and have it received with warmth and understanding, which therefore builds empathy, you know? So mm -hmm. uh, 
yeah, th these would be what I would do to create safe spaces for adults and young minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is that is an interesting one. Hey, like create safe spaces where you can have diverse co conversations opposed to, I believe what most all of us have been taught, there's a right and a wrong. And if you don't meet the right, then like you better catch up kind of thing, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I remember you sharing this another time with me that you just went to a beautiful weekend kind of seminar or workshop or just immersion, if you want to call it that, um, where regeneration was a topic, but also like interfaith, um, you know, was 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 part of the setup. Do you want to share about that a little bit and how how that influences the way we as adults uh, continue to learn and continue to broaden our perspectives? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the theme of the workshop was to build dialogue in the context of interfaith um, uh, and climate justice also being the context. So there are two things that we need, we're fighting with as a society today or fighting against and how do we reconcile both was the larger theme of the workshop. Mm. And it was, what was incredible for me was how much healing that gave me because I have um, as as many uh, as you and many other people who've been working in this um, in this particular field of regeneration and climate change and nature activism um, we all feel sort of we've been fighting and it's and fighting and fighting and not seeing the change that we want to see in the world and it's one, it's very kind of depressing and it's it's burdensome. And also this, uh, the, speaking of burden, like I realize that I've been feeling this incredible burden of I'm educated, I have a certain level of privilege. What am I doing with it? Like, why am I not doing more to um, change the way things are? And it's a, it's a huge burden uh, to just take on as, as, a, as an individual. So as part of the workshop, what I really, we had a lot of dialogue. There were people from different faiths. And when we say faith, it's religion, different religions, but also different faiths, like capitalism could be a faith. Um, or Yeah, um, in a certain Marxism. way, it's a belief system. Right? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what are you putting all your hope and trust in and then bringing that to the table? So it was very diverse in terms of the, the representation. People just came from everywhere in the country um, and from all sorts of places, everything from Marxism cool. and capitalism to Buddhism and uh, Christianity and Islam and uh, in Hinduism and all course, the yeah. other isms. All and the isms met up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we're like, and we started talking and started and more, more than talking, really listening to what the other person has to say. And so many things started emerging. And what was, and it was done in a very beautiful way. It was a safe space and it was four days where we stayed there. So you really got to kind of cut away from the sort of stress of daily life and traffic and like deliverables and whatnot. Um, and it was a lot of dialogue, a lot of thinking and reflection and literally spending a lot of this time just connecting with the other, um, both as individuals and as a group. And the beauty of that is it's, it's it's incredible. At the end of it, I feel unburdened in just knowing, okay, it's not just me. There's a lot of people who are already in this movement and fighting. And it's something you know, logically, but it's now almost like intuitively, you know. Um, so that was one big 
uh, takeaway. And the other was just that regardless of whatever ism is primarily uh, your focus in life, there's always a way to connect. Um, and there's always a way to really, when you dive into the depths of it, we're all seeking the same thing, which is like abundance and peace and love. And uh, there are just different attempts to get at it. And how do we just do it supporting each other? So like interdependence was kind of the word that really emerged out of it. And uh, I feel like I've been using that word a lot ever since I uh, came out of that uh, session. Interdependence. Yeah. 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 Another word that just came up uh, through Dr. Alan Rayner, who was on the show, is interrelating right so which is like a step now interdependence is like the awareness that we are at all times uh you know exchanging with all of the life forms on the planet right like we we, we breathe the oxygen and carbon dioxide through our breath cycle and interact with the trees and, and therefore with all of the other living organisms but as humans we also interrelate with everyone around us and so what comes up for me quite a bit when you share about all the isms is you know often the isms are in a polar duality. So if you're not pro-capitalism, then you must be a Marxist communist. It's like, well, matter of fact, like this is not the only other option, you know, but somehow there's this duality that is, is, is often in the assumed space. And so not for everyone, of course, but having these, these, um, yeah, these weekend workshops or, you know, we host immersions that are like a week or 10 days long to, to just let people be and bring their opinions and then let it all sink into the ground through, through practices in nature or practices with nature. And, and suddenly most people realize like there's so much more uh, when we just acknowledge as you, as you said so beautifully, Nisha, the interdependence or the way we interrelate. There's so much more um, to life. And, and from there, then the solutions of regeneration are, they're like the, not just the logical next step, but just the heartfelt next step, you know? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. I love that. You know, I mean, we're so, if you're not doing this, then you must be that. <laughs> That's really just labeling everybody in this stark manner. And most people are, I mean, most things are a spectrum at the very least, if, if not a huge complex helix, right? So, uh, it's just so strange when you're supposed to be either extreme this or extreme right and everything else is just um and and that really kind of when you look at it this form of linear extreme thinking which is really inbuilt into our system into and across the world it's it's crazy how across the world we're all at this uh sort of kind of system that we're all coming from and that really essentially is why we're dealing with all of this right because yeah. we're trying to solve the climate crisis or the, the planetary crisis if it's like okay you have to either do this or you have to do that but no you have to do a lot of it there has to be some people do this some people do something else and then it all ties up together like the whole world need not become vegan or the whole world need not like start wearing one particular type of clothes and when you when you start embracing that diversity which is essentially really life itself i think the solutions really start emerging and um, it becomes a whole lot easier to work um with the problem at hand and, and then the planet becomes your ally uh in solving this uh crisis 
That is a powerful statement. The planet becomes our ally because there's no need to save the planet. It's more about finding our right relationship with the natural world again as part of the natural world, right? And and the the solutions are the very visibly in front of us when we observe long enough. And we um, again, I'm going to hold up this amazing book by Peter Wolleben. I should have him on the podcast at some point. Um, you know, when we when we observe long enough. Uh, rather than just interfere in the way our minds are like, oh, we can just do this and then do that and build a dam and really all route the water. And it's like, yeah, we, we can do all of this. And through the globalized industrial world, we have done a lot of it. And the, you know, the consequences are pretty dire for the natural world. And, and so really interesting to, you know, to see also with the years of, of doing this, this kind of work um, that everywhere on the planet, you know, in all the continents and all the countries, there's people that are they're getting it, they're digging it, they're applying it to the way they work, just like you, right? And um, we're in this together. It's like there are different uh, agents of change that are waking up to uh, operate within also the geopolitical complexity that glo globalization has brought. You know, there's this ups and downs to, to, to that, obviously. But as you said earlier in this episode, like some of these complexities of, let's say, a city like Bangalore or, or a, a, a government like India, they we need to be able to play with them until we've reorient back to right relationships with nature. We can't really fight them, right? There is like a, that's like a, a big thing that I think we're learning. I want to ask you specifically, Nisha, how do you stay optimistic um, in, in, in this kind of work? Because I know um, a lot of people, when they think of climate justice, climate change, um, all of these topics, um, it's really easy to get lost in like the doomsday narrative of mainstream media. How do you personally stay optimistic? It is, it is a bit of a wave of like optimism that comes and goes, but I really look at what gives me a lot of strength is knowing that the planet has been around a lot longer than we can even imagine. Mm. And it's been surviving. And uh, it's been like emerging and re-emerging in different states of balance. Um, creatures have lived and died. And um, just that thought of like, there's this much larger sort of a system at play and it's so beautifully complex. Um, and, and that me or anybody, any of even the, the biggest scientists or the most deeply connected person, nobody has all the answers. Um, and in fact, you know, even in the hidden life of trees, like whatever you, whatever we've unraveled about the natural planet is very, very little. There's so much more to it. So I really truly believe when I, that, if we continue to work towards it in good intent and keeping on learning and adapting and with new information and including as much people as possible, I think the I am I don't know, I have this deep belief that the planet will just turn and um, help us heal ourselves mm. and itself. So all we need to do is just like keep at it um, and allow for space and allow for room for different voices to come to to express. Um, and I feel at some point it will just come together because, and it really heartens me to see more and more people, especially the, the young mm -hmm. people in the children, the late teens and early twenties, the amount of passion with which they're, um, 
living and working towards this, it's very inspiring. So mm. yeah, so I, I have this faith that it will work out. Um, and I also have this faith that the planet will be fine. Um, and uh, that gives me a lot of comfort and optimism. Beautifully said. I have a last question for you um, for this episode, and that is, what your what's your what's your dream for planet Earth? If you could put it into the field, you're broadcasting it right now. Um, you know, for the next seven generations after us, like what what's what's the dream you're here to to share with um, with us today? The dream for the planet is that we. Um, as a species, we're the we're really the only species who's lost that connect, and it's there within us. That little bit of that that connect is there. And my dream for the planet and is that human beings really open up our hearts to the rest of the planet, to each other, uh, but also to every other creature, every other being, every other like um, pop, everything else that is even if it's a rock or a stone, like just opening up and I feel that it doesn't affect anything when we do that it doesn't affect our evolution it doesn't affect our kind of the the way we are living and there are ways we can achieve that balance um so my wish for the planet for the next seven generations is that with every day the species just reconnects more and more with everything else that the the planet uh, naturally has Mm, oh, that's beautifully, that's beautifully put. Uh, may it be so. Such a beautiful conversation with you today, Nisha. Uh, is there anything else you'd love to share? Anything you'd love to bring attention to? Um, that, you know, how people can be in touch with you. Uh, I know that you're, you've traveled the world already. You're, you're, you're active, not just in India, but, but you know, across borders. And um, you bring so much positivity to, to this movement. Um, I'm, I'm super grateful you, you've made time for this interview today. Anything yeah, else you'd, you'd, love to, you. you'd love to share? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Julian. It was really, thanks for holding, this was also a safe space, a comfortable space to share. And thanks for holding that. Um, I think I'm, what I would like to say to whoever wants to contact me for anything where um, what I'm really building towards is a large network of organizations and individuals who are working together. Everyone has their individual genius. So um, if anything, anybody wants to collaborate, partner, just have a conversation uh, about these topics. Um, I'm always, I'll always be uh, available. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'd offer to anyone who wants to join the movement, is already in the movement, wants to do something more or do less or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye.